Thank you so much to all of you for being with us this morning, both online and here in this physical setting. It is my great joy to be with you. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Um, if anybody knows me, if you've taken a class with me, if you've ever been in a room with me when I'm preaching, I like to hear what you have to say while I'm talking, you can talk too. You know what I mean? Like everybody, yeah, you can just be like, yes, I don't know, hmm, you know, I like that. So please, by all means, if you, you know, if you feel so moved, <laughs> Waldo's laughing at me right now, but if you feel moved by anything, you know, like I'm listening to you, you read the scripture, and I'm like, mm-hmm, okay, wow, you know, so let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go and let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus. Help us to see you in our midst. God, help us to sense your presence. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, God. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. In early 2016, I was hired to study joy at Yale. For real, my job was to read about, think about, and investigate joy and I was ecstatic about it. And then eight months into working at Yale, three of my family members died in four weeks. My cousin's husband, Dustin, died at 30 by suicide. My nephew, Mason, died suddenly a couple of weeks later at 22 of a previously unknown heart condition. And then five days after my nephew's funeral, I found myself at my dad's hospital bedside spending the last five hours of his life with him after about 12 years of opioid use. In the months that followed those four weeks of hell, Job became a biblical character I could suddenly relate to. I could imagine him covered in ash, dark circles under his eyes from too little sleep and too much pain. He loses all but one of his family members and everything he owns, even his dignity. At the end of himself, Job goes to God. When Job reaches out for compassion, wanting God to explain why everything has gone so wrong, God says a lot of different things. But one line has always stuck with me. At one point, God asks Job if he knows where the mountain goats give birth. Um, no, no, I don't know. I don't know when, God. Roll eyes, shrug shoulders, go back to crying. For over a year and a half, I would imagine that I felt the way that a Job felt in that moment, that I was going to God about my pain, and God was talking to me about mountain goats. I love Job's story because it is authentic and difficult to understand. It has been debated for centuries. I also love it because it demonstrates so well how quickly bad theology emerges when people are hurting and life is unbearable. Yeah, you can, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Bible is not a Google map to the good life, unfortunately. 
As I came to accept after my weeks of hell, the Bible is more like instructions for filing your taxes, which I just did recently. You know, it's saying something important, and it feels like it's talking about benefits and deductions, but it's unclear, frustrating, and it takes longer than you wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And you've implicitly been trained to always wonder whether you did the right thing and whether you need an expert to help you. Rather than being some sort of checklist for becoming a holy person, the Bible is a bunch of stories about people who endured messy existences. The more I read the Bible, the more I noticed how often its stories end with questions rather than answers. More st most stories have little to no resolution. You turn the page excited to find out what happened only to realize that Jesus has moved on to a different town. Sometimes really beautiful things happen in the Bible. Sometimes people are healed and they literally jump for joy. But the Bible is basically chock full of people struggling to make it one more day, to do hard things and to hear from God. People found themselves in massive storms, lions, dens, and brothels. They suffered infertility, moved from place to place, unsure where they would find their next meal. There are quite a few refugees in the Bible. Slept with other people's spouses, stole from their siblings, betrayed their closest friends, and gave away their baby boys so that they would not be murdered. More often than not, the Bible tells the stories of people who being led right to the promised land never get to see it. They lost everything from homes to temples to the meaning of life and as, as it's important to realize they wept often. I have continued to read the Bible though including its points of confusion and frustration for me, because I find it reassuring that there are other people who have lived who don't have everything figured out. Ultimately, the Bible reminds me that there is a larger story being told, and the voice of God continues to speak to me through its pages. As I read it and I look for this overarching narrative, I realize that my story, my family's story, that your story are all caught up in this larger and all-embracing story about how somehow, against all odds, God's unconditional love encompasses the world. Things are being made new, dead things come back to life again, and life is worth living. The Bible invites us to be discerning people not just about the stories in its pages, but as we read about the stories that we live and encounter. When we read Bible stories, it is important for us to be able to imagine being on the side of suffering and liberation, pain and healing, despair and joy. As we reflect on Noah's Ark, we must both imagine the joy of making it on the boat and the despair of being left off. As we see the walls of Jericho fall in our mind's eye, we should consider Joshua's team, certainly, but also those human beings being buried under the rubble. As we imagine and study the woman at the well whom I like to call Sarah, we must also identify with her. We need to be able to see our potential to be the Good Samaritan, the person who walked by, the person lying in the ditch, and one of the robbers who put them there. 
as we engage in this kind of imaginative discernment, as individuals and in community together, biblical stories create a dialogue between the lives of the people we are reading about and our own lives. We read the text and it reads us. And it is here in the midst of faithfulness to this dialogue, genuinely open, carefully listening, steadfastly struggling with questions, trying this way and that way, that the Spirit of God quietly reveals, this is how you love. What wholeness is, the shape of forgiveness, what it looks like to find meaning in the mess, to rejoice and to resist despair, to recognize the good, to stand in awe of beauty, to share in joy. Along the way, the Spirit shapes and empowers us to become more human, more alive, more attuned to the something more. After my four weeks of hell, study joy. Unthinkable, laughable even. So disturbing a prospect that I almost vowed to be anything but joyful for a year and a half afterward. I had read everything I could get my hands on about joy for the first months after arriving at Yale. But after those weeks, the word made me cringe. What a lie. Life was not joyful. It was a long walk toward death. A year and a half later, something remarkable happened. It's really important for you to hear that this was a year and a half later. <laughs> I mean, this was six months of EMDR therapy and many other months of crying in my living room and crying all over the city of New Haven and fear and anger and doubt later. But a year and a half later, I surrendered to a strange invitation. I became a volunteer at a women's prison, co-leading a women's Bible study with women on suicide watch, most of whom were in prison for some sort of crime related to substance use. Side note, addiction, suicidal thinking, they're health crises, not moral failures. My volunteerism, my family suffering, my personal faith and doubt, and my study of joy collided in that prison Bible study. Suddenly, I began to understand joy, most especially joy amid suffering. Now at first, singing was my least favorite part of leading Bible study because I was incredibly self-conscious. Over time, it became my favorite part of the evening the women would sing loudly and unashamedly, even if not on pitch. And I began to mirror them. And this is what made this space so meaningful. This is why stories were told there. This is why women were brave in this space. It's because there was no shame in that room. I don't know that I've ever been in any other place that had so little shame. One Wednesday night along the way, I realized that they were not insecure, so why did I need to be? 
We do not usually recognize that we enjoy having permission to be ourselves until we get that permission. And when we do, it is incredibly freeing. Another reason I grew to love singing was because I stopped leading it <laughs> most of the time. As it turned out, other women in the room had incredible gifts for leading music, and some had remarkable voices. I could just sit back and enjoy being led. And I also learned to love it because of the transformation that happened in the room when we sang. We all came alive. It is as if the music was revival water for the dead parts of our souls. And don't we miss that right now, right? I mean, there's something about music that can make us come alive if we let it. We frequently sang a song called Spring Up Oh Well. I sang this song many times, first as a child at camp, and then at youth group, and then as a camp counselor, and then as a college student, and then as a youth minister myself, I'm sure that many of you have sang that song many times over. You know, I've got a river of life flowing out. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Spring up, oh well. Of course, the, the, there's a line in the song where we sing, I've got a river of life flowing out of me, opens prison doors, sets the captives free. Has a different tonality far different meaning when you sing it with exuberance with women who are literally in prison. One evening, we sang This Little Light of Mine, especially passionately. This became a favorite among all of us because one night, one of the women um, decided she wanted to you know, throw in her own line. So we had sang kind of all the regular lines of the song, and then she was like, oh, I'm going to add all up in this place. I'm going to let it shine. But she really, she named the, the name of the institution. I can't do that here. But she named the all up in and the name of the place. Like, I'm going to let it shine. And so this became a regular practice among us that we would point at different people or people would raise their hand like, I have a line. And then we would all sing it. And we would dance and we would clap. And this particular night, we were, we were getting wild, y'all. We were singing, we were dancing so loud, clapping so, so loudly that one of the corrections officers, one of the COs, comes into the room. And immediately, we keep singing, but like, I'm nervous. I'm sure they're all nervous because we're wondering, is she going to tell us that we're being too loud? Is she going to tell us to calm down? You know, um, or is she going to shut down the Bible study entirely, which did happen sometimes for uh, numerous reasons. Um, but instead, she started clapping along and singing with us. And when the song was finished, she kept clapping. And she said, thank you. Thank you for bringing some joy into this place. Joy gathers. As we sang in this room, our ashes seemed to become crowns of beauty. Our mourning turned to joy and our spirits of despair transformed into praise. Our music became an act of resistance to all the forms of death that had happened and were happening in our lives. Our singing turned into embodied opposition to our fear, anger, and profound loss. Our joyful noise opposed the imprisonment of bodies, minds, hearts. Suddenly, we were rejoicing in what ought to be. Our dancing, jumping, and singing together pushed against voices of despair that declared, you are alone. 
You are worthless. There is no hope. The louder we sang and declared new truths, the more the, the more the voices sang to us, you do not matter, your grief will never lift, or your struggle will never be overcome or quieted. It was healing joy. In the very act of gathering, of committing to rejoice and to recognize what is good and true and to declare our meaning and dignity through God's love, we were participating in the very joy of God. Joy has grit. It does not break easily. It is not swayed by circumstances, by the conditions of our lives, whether excellent or heartbreaking. It can stare life's most brutal moments down and live because it is made and sustained by those things that always remain, even when we cannot see them. Truth, beauty, meaning, goodness, our relationship to one another. God. We can be lamenting and we can also be open to joy. In fact, I think it's important that we remain open to joy and grief, that we trust that joy can find us in our suffering. It was there, assembled with these women, in that Bible study, jumping and dancing in the air and clapping my hands boisterously, singing at the top of my lungs, that I realized they were my cloud of witnesses. And suddenly, I felt like the prophet Elisha's servant. One morning, as Brother Ben read, Elisha and his servant were surrounded by a strong force of people with horses and chariots who were trying to find and kill them. I had felt on many days as if I too was surrounded by a strong force and needed to remain prepared for imminent disaster and death. Many of us have felt that way for the last year. Elisha asked God to open his servant's eyes so that they could see what Elisha saw. The servant's eyes were opened and the servant saw that those who were with them were more than those who were against them. There were horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And as I looked at these women, this cloud of witnesses dancing around me, I saw something like what Elisha and the servant had seen. It was as if God whispered, you're not defenseless. There was something beyond what I had been able to recognize previously. And it is the something more which surrounds current circumstances, is the invisible connection between human beings, is deeper what the, than the eye can actually see that makes life meaningful, that resists despair. While singing in this room the something more of God, of love that is worth praying for, worth seeking, worth living for, became so real to me. After Elisha and his servant saw the something more, Elisha asked God to blind the army that was trying to kill them. And rather than leading the army where they intended to go, Elisha took them to a different place. Elisha led the blinded army into its enemy's city. When those in the army arrived and their eyes were opened, they realized they were suddenly the vulnerable ones. I imagine they were terrified. But when the king of Israel asked Elisha whether everyone in the army should be killed, Elisha responded 
with a wild idea. Elijah said that they should be fed and freed. And so the king provided a feast and the men went away. It is a mysterious, miraculous turn of events. Nourishment and life instead of retribution and death. Right there in the middle of the Old Testament. Why did Elisha say this? Why did the king follow? I imagine it is because of the gift of the something more. When our eyes are opened, when we begin to see things, people as God does, everything changes. We can meditate on things that point beyond themselves, things that are all around us. Music, the birth of a baby, the appearance of spring flowers, grass growing through the concrete, and the irrepressibility of human love. I've learned that when we do such meditating, we begin to see things as more significant than we might have first imagined. Not just other people, but anything, even everyday objects. And eventually, the practice of looking beyond, of searching for the something more that touches so many aspects of life, helps us to recognize the permeability, the transcendence of our lives, and the fact that we are not as alone as we may feel. It helps us to recognize that life is not as empty or bleak or worthless as we were beginning to think. When my sister Stephanie looks at a mason jar, she does not just see a jar. She sees her son, my nephew, Mason. She hears his voice, remembers his text, recalls the video games he loved, and hears the song she often sang to him play in her head. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Whenever Steph sees a mason jar, she sees a mason jar. Whether in someone's hand filled with tea or bursting with flowers on a friend's coffee table. And because it is not just an object she is seeing, but a relationship imbued with beauty, goodness, and meaning, she is then filled with an indescribable joy. Friends, joy is an illumination, the ability to see beyond to something more.